Hello to all of you. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, and welcome to our podcast, which we call TMI, The Motivation Inside. Hope you've been enjoying these weekly podcasts. We certainly have been enjoying producing them. Our goal in doing them, obviously, is to give you a glimpse inside how things really work professionally and personally uh, from our family to your family and from you as an individual. I sort of feel like we have to share with people the many faces of success and wealth. Let people know how we got here, not just me, but also my friends and the people that we're interviewing. Uh, And I think it's important that we all know and understand that we all have greatness inside of us. It just takes a lot of hard work, intense focus to achieve success. And it also requires somebody to be very passionate about something, to love something, to get up in the morning and never feel that it's work that they're doing, uh, but it's their life stream or their life's activity. The road is winding. Uh, I can share with you my 28-year Wall Street career, but it would be boring. Uh, But there's a lot of ups and downs in it. It wasn't an easy road to get to where I am. It's up to you to find out what motivates you and to get you on your path to success. And just a reminder, I'm the founder of Skybridge Capital. It's a global investment firm with about $12 billion under management. But I'm also a Fox News and Fox Business contributor. I host a, a show. It's actually an iconic TV program. It was on for 35 years, from 1970 to 19 to 2005. Uh, we brought it back last year. It's called Wall Street Week. It's on the Fox Business Network Friday evenings at 8 p.m., Saturday at 9 a.m., and Sunday at the same time. I've also written two books. Uh, one is called The Little Book of Hedge Funds uh, and more of a personal memoir story. I wrote a book called Goodbye, Gordon Gecko in 2010. And I'm working on my third book uh, on entrepreneurship, which is coming out on October 25th. Uh, Again, for first-time listeners, uh, even though I'm on Wall Street, which seems to be one of the most hated things to do uh, in the world at these times, I don't view myself necessarily as a Wall Street guy. I live two miles from my mom and dad. I kind of do that on purpose. I think it's important to have your family close to you and to stay connected. Uh, Some of our listeners, I think, can relate to that. I'm sitting in here in a very expensive suit, uh, but I started with 100% polyester. Uh, and back then, it, probably the suits fit better too because I was a little bit thinner. Uh, I would rather be in cargo shorts, but I got a lot of meetings today. I pride myself as a risk taker uh, and taking risks not only on people or in ideas, but also looking around the universe. Uh, our next guest we actually found on medium.com. Uh, And so it's a great honor for me to introduce you to him shortly. I want to talk about today honor, bravery, honesty, integrity, but really honor should be the thread that runs through everything that we do. I was skimming the internet, we were reading, and we found a beautiful article. It was titled, A Letter to My Daughter About Young Men. I thought it was going to come with a taser, perhaps a uh, mace can as well. And then I started reading this article, and it absolutely blew me away. And so we had to, my producer, Susan Krakauer, uh, reached out to our next guest. And I said I wanted to not only meet the author, but interview him here on TMI. So please welcome Benjamin Sledge. Benjamin. (laughs) Go by Ben or Benjamin? Uh, Typically Ben, but most of my... uh... Welcome to TMI. Your writing has astounded me. It stopped me in my tracks, uh, and it really got me thinking, so I thank you for that. 
Well, thanks. I appreciate it. And it's an honor to be here on the show. You're, now, now for listeners, Ben is a uh, wounded combat veteran. He had tours of duty in Iraq and Afghanistan. He served in the United States Army. A portion of it was under our special forces. Uh, 11 years of service to the United States. Uh, and so the first thing I'd like to say to you, sir, is thank you for your service. What was it like to be in the U.S. Army? Uh, it was good. Um, you know, I, I started out in 99 before, um, I mean, before, you know, the war on terror even started. And, and I joined to typically just uh, like a lot of people that have done from just kind of the middle class family to, to pay for college. And, you know, my parents were like, you're going to go to college. I was like, that's awesome. They're like, we're not paying for it. And I was like, okay. So, um, my, my family history comes from a long lineage of military service. My, uh, grandfather was a paratrooper in World War II. He was actually a general Patton's scotch supplier. So that was interesting. Um, and then my other grandfather was in during the Korean war. And then I had, uh, some uncles in during the Vietnam war. So long history of military service, and um, when I joined, I knew that I wanted to do something a little bit different. And so I joined a uh, division of the Army Special Operations Command, uh, not Special Forces. Special Forces are the Green Berets. People typically get those confused. There's actually five branches out of Special Operations. So there's a lot of uh, quantifying things served under um, the Joint Special Operations Command and um, the United States Special Operations Command for, for a portion of those. And then along with uh, a couple infantry units out of uh, 10th Mountain Division, 82nd Airborne, and uh, Civil Affairs Command. You, you, there, there was a psychological, aspirational, uh, operational aspect. To this was, was there not? Yeah, um, and that's that is our um, that's the oversight. It's called USAKPOC, which is the United States Civil Affairs and Psychological Operations Command, and you work a lot with the indigenous local populations uh, in an area. So it, it's a very difficult job in a lot of ways because you're trying to what they typically call win hearts and minds, but also at the same time avoid getting shot in the process. Amazing, amazing story. You told us about your family uh, and their lineage into the army, but if you had to describe to our listeners what the army taught you, what did they teach you, Ben? Yeah. You know, the, the, I mean, there, there's a lot that's going on in the world today. Um, I mean, you look at the news and you just kind of see how broken kind of things are and how people are upset with, you know, whether who's running for president or, um, you know, race relations in the United States and the army really kind of broke all that down, uh, and really taught, me how to work as a with people that were completely different from me that had different backgrounds and different upbringings and taught us to work as a cohesive unit and taught us to love and serve one another um, and especially operate with honor towards one another not to despise one another but um, realize that each one of us is going to be responsible for our uh, what we call our battle buddies back and regardless of who they are where they came from the color of their skin you know and who or who they loved like these were the people that we were going to be on the front lines with. And um, your job was to make sure that they made it home, uh, even at the great expense to your life. And that was something completely different for me. I, and I remember when I got home from Afghanistan, uh, I was sitting with my grandfather who uh, lived in Colorado. He's since passed away. And uh, he looked at me. And uh, we were just outside, and he has these giant cottonwood trees, and it looked like it was snowing in the backyard. And I'll never forget, he, he just looks at me, and he says, now you're a man. And I was like, well, what does that mean? And before he, he kind of let me answer, he said, now you know what it, 
what it means to, to love, to sacrifice for somebody, and to care more deeply about their well-being than you do yourself. And that was, that was huge for me coming from you know, somebody that I respected so much who had um, you know, fought the Nazis and, and was part of the, the greatest generation. So to see that he grasped it and then it was passed on through me, this idea of honor and integrity and so, like sacrifice and selfless service, um, I, I was I was glad that that was something that they 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 beat into you in the military. It's an amazing story. I, I, I'm going to add a couple of things to your biographical background. You're the recipient of a Bronze Star, the Purple Heart, and two Army Commendation Medals. Yet when reading about you, you say, and I'm going to quote you: "They're just silly pieces of ribbon with medals <laughs> attached to the end." So, what do you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, they really are. Uh, when you think about it, it's like, hey, and I, I kind of joke because, you know, the Purple Heart is, it means that you were wounded in combat. And basically, it's your enemy marksmanship award. It's like, congratulations, this enemy got you. Um, and and I, I kind of I laugh at that. But, um, you know, if, if I could have, my best friend Kyle was killed while we were overseas. And if I could have him back, I would chunk every single one of those into a fire and burn them um, just, just to have him back. Yep. Um, it, because they, they have meaning attached to it, but the greatest meaning was knowing what I did on the battlefield. And the greatest meaning to me was the people that I served with. And, and they know what I did, and they were there, and they grasped that and understood that. And I, I think the thing is is – you know, there's, there's this honor and this value that's, that's attached to them. But at the end of the day, like there's, there's no monetary value to them. They're just, they really are. They're just a piece of metal with a ribbon and the value that's intrinsically placed before them is given to us by other men and women or what, you know, a governing authority would say, Oh, well, well, this, this makes you an honorable person. And yet when I served overseas, there were tons of guys and, and women that deserved, medals and didn't get them um just because uh it didn't go through the right chain of command or you know they were lower enlisted and it just they didn't get the honor that they deserve so sometimes um you know honor and the the awards and the memories that go along with that sometimes are captured solely in the veterans memory well you know as a uh, a non-military person uh, i had two uncles and my dad served in the U.S. Army. I've, I've tried to get involved with veterans projects. I went to uh, Baghdad as a civilian in January of 2011. I was in uh, Kabul, Afghanistan in October of 2015. Mm-hmm. And uh, again, as a civilian, uh, trying to help the Pentagon on, on, on some issues and uh, a military support, veteran support uh, effort, I was always blown away by the spirit and the camaraderie of the younger people uh, that I met in those areas. And so my heart goes out to you for the loss of your friend, uh, Kyle, but also I'm sure there were other things that you experienced over there that had to be painful. You've written about this. You've said that you struggled while you were deployed. So how so? How did you struggle? Yeah. um, You know, I I grew up in... Uh, a typical, you know, leave it to beaver life. My, my parents are fantastic. Um, grew up in Oklahoma, which is like the buckle of the Bible belt. And, uh, it, it was just, 
I, I lived, you know, I got bullied in high school, but that was, that was really about it. And had, had some bumps here and there along the road. Um, just because I, I was the, I was the metal kid, you know, I loved listening to like Pantera and Metallica and, um, you know, wearing the, the dark clothes. Cause I, so I was kind of the weirdo and the outcast at, at one point, but most of my life was, was good. And I didn't really understand the way that the rest of the world operated. You know, I had my bubble there in Oklahoma and when I joined the military, you know, and I deployed for the first time in my life, you know, I really, um, I began to see the world for what it was. And, um, it, it really, it really kind of, there was a question that nagged me because, um, you know, faith for me played an important part after the war, but at the time, like I wouldn't have believed, said I really believed in, in much of anything. And the, the question that nagged me was, is, um, when I, when I went overseas and people began to die and I began to see collateral damage as far as what happened, the question was, what are we here for on this earth? Because it seems that we're really good at wounding and killing one another. And that was, that was a question that really began to kind of, kind of mess with me, uh, in the long haul. And so, um, I wanted, I wanted an answer to that. And the other thing too, was just sometimes when you get to know the people there, like everyone assumes that sometimes the veterans come home and they're just angry at, you know, the Muslim population and they read Chris Kyle's book or, or something of that nature that assumes that, you know, we don't, we don't like Muslims or Muslim Americans or, and that's the farthest thing from the truth. Cause many of us work with them and it's the same issue that world war two veterans and Vietnam veterans has it. The more that you spend time getting to know the people in that country, in that area, the, the harder it is to see things that, that hurt them happen in the process. And, uh, I remember there's this, there's this day, one of the first days that I was in, uh, I arrived in Afghanistan. One of the guys that I was replacing, um, I said, what do you do? And he's like, oh, I'm a reservist. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm heading home to be, be a school teacher. And I was like, Oh, are you excited? He's like, well, I, I really don't know, um, anymore. And I was like, what do you mean? And he just launches into this story about how they're on the, the Pakistani border in the Missouri stand area. And he says, you know, we, we call in this airstrike and he goes and it drops this bomb and it hits this village of kids. And he goes, and I have to pull, you know, innocent kids out and hand them back to their parents. And he goes, and I don't know how I'm supposed to go home after that because I got kids at home. And I, I remember that story just kind of shook me to the core. And then when I was over there, I began to experience it. And so when I, when I came home, um, and after being wounded and angry and losing my best friend, I just, I began to struggle. I didn't trust people. I was, you know, I was violent and angry because I, I didn't know how to turn it off either. You know, they, they put you in this kind of survival mode and you're, you're just operating day to day. And it, it got hard when I got home and eventually, you know, I, I was lucky enough that I had friends and family and fraternity brothers that really cared about me that, um, said, you know, you, you need some help, man. And, uh, and got into some counseling. You said, in, at least in your writings, that you were sent to a, a small forward operating base on the Pakistani border. Uh, mm -hmm. and then you said I, where I began losing pieces of my soul due to combat. Explain that to us. Yeah. Um, uh, I mean, the tough part about, war is 
you either pull the trigger or you die. You know, it's, it's you or it's the other person. And, you know, when, when you've lived your entire life, you know, and the worst thing that's happened is you got in a car wreck. Um, when you watch another person die and you just kind of, they're there and then they're not there. Um, a young, a young person typically, right? Yeah. Yeah. Young, like, especially, you know, the guys that, that we had, there's, I mean, one of the guys that I knew on our base, like, I mean, he got shot one day and just bled out. And the last memory I have of him is, you know, just basically gasping for air on a stretcher. And within that, it just, you know, I've, I've written a lot about it and there's a new term for it as opposed to post-traumatic stress disorder. It's called moral injury. And it's the emotional trauma and psychological damage that happens when you witness things that violate your sense of morality, your sense of right and wrong. And did you you witness that sort of stuff in Ramadi? Because you said about Ramadi that it was the inner sanctum of hell. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, man, we, we, uh, we left. Oh my God, Ramadi. Um, we, we joked and we called that place the meat grinder cause that's what it was. I mean, it's just the craziest, it is the wild west. Um, after the fall of Fallujah, um, a lot of the insurgents went over to Ramadi and in two, from 2006 to 2007, and it counted for half of all daily attacks that occurred in Iraq, half of all deaths that occurred in the Marine Corps, um, you know, and, and just half of all of attacks that happened that year in Iraq. So, I mean, it was a, it was a crazy just place and the rules of engagement were some of the lean, you know, most lenient that I had ever been a part of simply because of the fact that it was so dangerous. I mean, you would, EOD would clear that area, um, clear the roads at night. And by, you know, like 9am the next day, every single road would be black, which means it's, it's just has explosives everywhere and you can't travel down it. And so, um, that place, I mean, it was nuts. Like it was just, and it began to, you know, as far as violating your sense of right and wrong, man, there was this one time we were, we were helping out some locals, uh, in a nearby combat outpost. And this, uh, we had to pay this poor woman that we had accidentally, you know, blown her arm off with a 50 cal. And I'm just like, you know, what, what do you do in that situation? Like, you know, collateral damage is what they call it, but um, you know, I, I just, I remember going home and laying him or going home, going back to Romani and just laying in my bed and just being like, man, we hurt an innocent person. And, you know, and just, I didn't know how to process that. And, 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 and you struggled, uh, you write about it. You had, uh, some levels of addictions, uh, mm-hmm. uh, you, uh, I, I, some of the combat experience and yeah. other, other things led you there. Uh, but you got a wonderful story. You 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 came back, uh, struggled a little bit, but you pulled it together. And so, tell us about that. Tell us tell us about the turn. Tell us about the pivot in your mind uh, to get you where you are today. <laughs> uh, so I I had come back from Iraq, and um, my wife had left while I was overseas, and um, you know, I came home to basically an empty house and. 
didn't, and we had bought a house while I was gone. You know, I'd given her a power of attorney. And so I come home to this empty house that I've never lived in that I don't know where it is. And, um, I, you know, iPhones had just come out, so I didn't know where I was going. So I had to grab a map and, um, and I, I show up at this house and, um, I'm just sitting there in my, in my uniform and I'm like, I want, I want to kill myself. This is the, you know, this is terrible. Um, and I remember, you know, thinking like, I'm either going to kill myself or I'm going to kill her <laughs> kind of thing. And I, I was just so angry. And luckily my, one of my best friends from college called me and he was like, dude, do not, do not stay there. He's like in that house. He's like, cause he just knew how viable I was. Um, and, and how, you know, traumatized I was. And he, so he said, I, I've got a pot of coffee and a case of beer drive, drive to Austin. And I was like, all right. So I rented a car and drove to Austin and I lived on his, his couch for like a month trying to, trying to figure it out. And, um, it just didn't get any better. And so the funny thing was, is like he, he I was like agnostic. He was atheist and, uh, he was, we were going downtown on sixth street and partying all the time. And I, he could just tell I was getting worse and I was getting worse. And, uh, you know, I was drinking all the time and he was like, Hey man, like, can, can I like take you to church or something? I was like, why would you want to do that? That's ridiculous. And so he ends up taking me to like this church here in Austin. And, um, man, like that's where I really found faith. But ultimately I found two guys that really just loved and cared me and showed me, um, a side of Christianity that I had never seen, um, to where they just loved really messy and broken people. And I knew that, um, I knew that like their joy was infectious and they had been through a lot of recovery stuff too, like 12 step. Um, one of my, my close friends had been through 12 step for like self hate. And so eventually I got in the program, um, went through that and my life just rapidly began to change. Uh, and everything about me, um, just, I, I began to find joy and peace and contentedness. And I knew that, that I wanted to give back. And so I just began serving in different ways that I could, whether it was volunteering or volunteering at the church that I was at and, uh, just helping other people. And eventually this led me to, uh, an organization called heart support that was started by the lead singer of one of my favorite bands, a band that's uh, a Grammy nominated metal band called August Burns Red. And, uh, I love their music and, you know, they're one of those bands that like they scream and you, you have no idea. And like everybody listens to it and thinks you're like worshiping Satan while you're listening to this music. And growing up, I had, I had been ostracized, um, for listening to that type of music. And yet Jake, the founder, he, he was a Christian too. And, um, he wanted, all he knew that was that he had this platform and he wanted to help people and give back to them regardless of who they are, what they believed, where they were at, how broken they were. And I was like, man, I can, I can get on board with that. I want, I want to, I want to give back in a way because so many people have helped me get to where I am today. And the more that I began to serve and the more that I began to volunteer my time, it just led to more and more opportunities to where I was able to, um, take gifts and cultivate them. Um, my best friend, the, one of the guys that I had met at my church is actually a, a wall street journal bestselling author. And so I knew that I wanted to write and speak. And he was like, let me train you in that. And so more and more opportunities presented itself 
And uh, I just kept taking them. And I, I faced down criticism, rejection, and a lot of different areas where normally I would have wanted to give up. But um, I had people in a community surrounded around me that believed in me. Well, I, you know, obviously what attracted us to you was your writing. It's uh, not only prolific, but I actually think your writing is beautiful. Uh, where did you learn to not only write so well, but with so much honesty? <laughs> that was Josh. Um, Josh was the most, uh, um, he would just, I mean, he's the most incredible storyteller that I've ever heard. And he, I would just be fascinated sitting in a conversation with him and asking about, you know, well, tell me about this or tell me about this. And he would weave parables and stories together for me about what life was like. And he was so honest with me. And that's really what opened me up um, and, and made me open towards healing. Because when I first met him and I was, you know, dealing with moral injury and post-traumatic stress disorder and, and you know, the divorce and everything, um, and we were talking, he just said, Ben, I want to let you know I'm in counseling too. And I was like, what? You know, I was like, for what? And his parents had, had died, uh, just recently successively within like three months of each other. And he was just in just a lot of depression, a lot of despair and just opened his life up to me. And he was like, you know, if, if we're going to be friends and we're going to live our life and we're going to write about things that matter to us, he said, we better be willing to bleed on the paper for it. So, so you did that. And, and the, the blog that you wrote that I read, a letter to my daughter about young men. Where did you get that idea from? Um, so I, I work a lot with young millennials, um, you know, hard support and, um, you know, typically mid twenties or so. And, um, we deal a lot with women that have been the victim of either sexual assault or they've just been strung on by guys and, and, I know that in my earlier days, I, I wasn't really that good of a guy. You know, I was just out to kind of use and abuse women, and um, not every guy's like that. Uh, and especially, but there's kind of this culture now within um, you know our ads and what we're led to believe on TV that you know, um, and you know, I think a lot of it, victims advocates would call it, you know, rape culture, basically where young men are taught. No, doesn't mean no. It just kind of means try harder, use smoother lines, you know, whatever, whatever it takes to get what you want and don't care about the other person. Um, and so the, the guys that were instrumental in my life that helped change my life, um, I watched the way that they treated their wives and man, like it blew me away. Like when I, after I got out of the military, I worked for a private intelligence firm and I, I would hear the way that some people in my job would, you know, talk about their spouses and, you know, they weren't really selling me on the whole getting married thing. It was like, you know, it was basically like, well, I made a vow, the old ball and chain, ha ha ha. And I was like, I don't, I don't want that. I had already been through a divorce and I knew that like, I knew how messy it was. And I knew that the problems that I had brought into that marriage and the dysfunction that I had. And, and I wanted to, to know what it looks like to be an honorable man and the things that I had learned in the military and to, um, help, you know, kind of communicate to young women that, that so, they're, 
Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to say you, you, you did that beautifully, and, it, and I'm, I'm going to read something, and I want you to react to it. Uh, sure. Uh, this is your writing, and I love the freshness of it. I love the uh, authenticity. Uh, you wrote, I wish I could tell you that your father was an honorable man when he was younger, but he was not. He ran with the pack and even became their leaders at times, mm. hunting at night like a rabid wolf or an insatiable vampire, feeding on those he deemed weak or easy prey. There were even the strong ones he simply viewed as a challenge, and like every vampire trick in the book, I was charming until I left you half dead and drained. Now, I know you're yeah. talking about women and the pursuit of women in this, in this paragraph, but talk about it. Yeah. So when I was, you know, in college and, you know, in my mid twenties, um, my whole desire was to not cultivate a relationship, but it was women as a conquest. And the reason why was because, um, you know, that's, that's what I was being taught in the culture around me that, you know, um, everything was about my needs, my wants, my desires. And so, it was easy for me to spot the woman in the, the crowd of her friends that, you know, wasn't as, um, sure of herself, wasn't as confident. And so she was, she was easy prey for me. And then there were the girls that were challenges to me that, you know, it became more about a conquest. And so at certain points, you know, in my life, like I had other guys looking up to me and, you know, high-fiving me for like, oh, you know, Sledge hooked up with so-and-so last night and, um, you know, that was awesome. And, and, you know, I would laugh and encourage them to kind of do the same. And it wasn't until, you know, kind of later in my life that I realized the destructive tendencies and patterns, and especially when I went through 12-step, um, Step nine is making amends with the people you've wounded. And man, that was horrible to do with uh, some of the women that I had wounded. And tracking them down was, you know, and some of them were like, F you, I don't ever want to talk to you, you know, even though I was trying to, to apologize and make amends. Um, and so, I, you know, I saw that I, I was that vampire. I was the wolf, the jackal that was on the hunt at night to get what I could out of, out of women. So, so then you go on to explain that she needs to find honorable men. So how do you look, how do you look for honor? Yeah. So one of the things that I wrote about in the blog was I think for me when I, when I looked at the other guys that I look up to and that I wanted to emulate, there was this, um, this quiet strength almost. Like they weren't afraid to speak their mind and they were these powerful entities, but um, – there was this meekness to them. And so often we, we view meekness as, you know, what it rhymes with weakness. We go, Oh, that dude's, you know, he's quiet or he's meek and, you know, men will jab at one another. They'll make, you know, jokes about them being gay or what, whatever have you for this quality of meekness. And what I discovered was, is in the men that I looked up to and emulated and that I saw acting in honorable ways, it was this quiet strength. And I realized that it was strength under control and, and it was strength wrapped in humility. And that's really what it was. Meekness is strength wrapped in humility. It's, they were humble enough to know that they were powerful, but, but, um, you know, easily meek enough to, 
to, you know, kind of put that under wraps to where they could be powerful in the moments that they needed to, um, to speak their mind for justice and, um, and those that had been marginalized and oppressed. And then also at the same time, they, they were slow with their words, um, for those that were hurting, marginalized and oppressed. And so I, I began to watch the way that men interacted with people on the street, you know, whether, um, and, and I began watching these guys, you know, in Austin, there's a lot of homeless. And so I began to watch certain people that would, you know, oppress, um, the, the homeless there in the community. And then I watched other guys that would even on dates, they would stop, talk to the guy, you know, either let him know, Hey, I don't have any money, but I, I'm willing to buy you food kind of thing. Uh, and that just, you know, the more that I began to kind of people watch as far as these young men and what I had seen and learned, these, these traits begin to emerge, this selflessness, uh, that I had learned in the military and sacrifice. They were willing to, you know, put the needs of, uh, their girlfriend or spouse above their own. Um, and that created just kind of this vibrant joy in, in their, you know, significant other. And then at the same time, the way that they treated others, you know, there's that age old saying, if you want to know how, uh, he's going to treat you, look at the way that he treats his mom, you know? No, no amen. And, 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 and <laughs> you, you've got this interesting spectrum of observation of the planet because you've been in combat. Uh, you've had some personal struggles, which you write very honestly about, and now you're observing sort of the social diagram of the earth. And so my question to you is, is the world out of control, Ben? <laughs> um, that's a, so I, I'm a hopeful optimist while at the same time being a realistic pessimist. So maybe, maybe I'm just realistic in some ways. Like I, I'm, I'm hopeful for the future. Um, I really am. Uh, I think a lot of people, I think if you look at history, Everybody has thought, you know, the the world's ending. I, I'm sure grandparents during, I, I mean, I've asked my grandmother, um, like, what did you think during World War II? Did you think this was it? And they were like, yeah, all the time. Um, that the world couldn't get any worse. And, and I think sometimes we view that too. And when everything's at its darkest, I think that sometimes we forget something as simple as light exists. And the, the thing that I found consistently in the people that are going on to make the biggest changes in this, this world and this society is hope and perseverance. And if you have hope that you can make a difference, and even in the face of rejection and outright suffering, if you're willing to persevere, then typically you can help impact lives and make a change for the difference. And I, and I look at the history makers that have done that from you know, Martin Luther King to Gandhi, and, and I see that happening. Well, I have to tell you, you've had an impact on, on my life. I've, I've already cut this out, sending the links to a lot of my friends, uh, my friends who have daughters, my friends that don't have daughters, but also to my sons uh, mm. so that I can share your story and some of the observations that you've made uh, because I think they're so powerful. I, I, I have to tell you, it, it's an honor to be speaking with you. Uh, and to have found your writing and to have you on, on TMI. And, and just for our listeners to read more of Ben's writing, go to heartsupport.com. You can follow Ben on Twitter at SledgeHS, at Facebook, Benjamin Sledge. And I want to, Ben, personally thank you for being with us. Uh, guys, please subscribe to this podcast, TMI, uh, with me on iTunes. And please go rate and review it so we can continue to bring you the content that matters. Also, share the podcast with friends and coworkers who you think 
people enjoy listening to the type of insight that people like Ben can provide us. Uh, remember to email me, uh, our email address, podcast at skybridgeinsights.com. And I want to, Ben, once again, thank you for having you on with us. I hope to get you back soon. Thank you. All, right, all the best.